All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for December 2nd, 2022. We are back after a couple of weeks off, thanks to travel and Thanksgiving and uh, whatever else happened over the last couple of weeks. Um, a, a lot did actually happen over the last couple of weeks, but uh, whether we'll get to all of it or what we'll talk about remains to be seen. But uh, I am Bob Ambrosi, and uh, I write the blog Law Sites and uh, the podcast Law Next. And uh, how have you all been? <laughs> Missed you all over two weeks. It feels like a long time. Oh, it has good. been. Alive, alive. Good, 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 good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, let's uh, introduce ourselves and uh, let's see. Stephanie, you want to kick us off? Sure. Why not? I'm Stephanie Wilkins, the editor in chief. Yeah. Why not? Uh, editor in chief of Legal <laughs> Tech News at ALM. And uh, yeah, it, has, it feels like it's been forever since I've seen you all. It, and uh, and you are rich on predictions for 2023. So maybe oh yes, yes. I'm very. Of a couple of those later. I know. So. Well, when I get a chance to read them, I'll be happy oh, to give okay. you everything that's going to happen next year in legal tech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Nikki. Uh, my name is Nikki Black. I am the uh, uh, senior director of SME and external education in my case, and almost defaulted to my old title there. Um, I write legal technology columns for Above Law, ABA Journal, uh, The Daily Record, and I also write uh, two different reports for my case. The um, Legal Industry Report and some uh, benchmark report each year. Um, and uh, Legal Industry Report's coming out uh, in a couple of weeks. So look forward to that. I'm sure you're all on the edge of your seat. <laughs> Canceling Christmas right now, uh, just to make time for that. Steve. Hey, Steve Embry here. I uh, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads about legal technology, innovation, and whatever else I kind of strikes my fancy. I am also chair this year of the American Bar Association. Can't talk today. Law Practice Division. Uh, so I always have to give that plug. And before all that, I was a practicing lawyer with a big law firm for more years than I'd like to think. <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> And last but not least, Joe. Hey, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. I, um, you know, I, I, we've been gone for a while. It's been kind of exciting for me because my exciting news is I invested a lot in crypto this year and <laughs> it went up all summer and I'm thinking I'm going to get out right around January. Uh, uh, hopefully you're kidding. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Um, I do still have money in crypto, I'm afraid to say. The funny thing is, I for the money I have in crypto, I still am up from what I originally put into it, but not by anywhere near as much as I once was. <laughs> and now I'm like afraid to take it out because I'm sure it's going to go back up at some point. I don't know what to do about it. Um, I was but, gifted crypto at one point that I totally forgot about until right now. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's actually worth anything. Well, it depends on when you got it. Uh, but maybe I've got it long 20, enough ago. It 2020. I was gifted it in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> that could be close. Yeah. Um, probably would have wanted to cash it out about a year ago. Yeah, uh, I know, but it was frozen at the time. So that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, all right. Well, um, and let's see, Jean is away on vacation. Caroline is doing stuff. Victor, we think, is on paternity leave. So uh, who else are we missing? I think that's it. Um, so uh, I don't know where to start this this week. Uh, There's this, a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, uh, Joe and Steve, oddly enough, have kind of related themes to their stories this week. But I kind of feel like I wanted to start talking about with, with the rain in court news only because in terms of like the, the news that, that sort of shook up the legal tech world over the last couple of weeks, that might have been one of the biggest stories. Uh, the, the news that uh, rain in court was laying off staff, uh, you know, uh, cutting back on uh, it, its support of the vendors and uh, Generally, you know, it had, it had just a few months, but in September, it had launched this odd sort of internet uh, offering, not quite a, an IPO, but, a, but a, 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 an online stock offering to try and raise some money after having just raised a whole bunch of money earlier this year. Uh, so it leaves everybody kind of wondering, uh, 
what's the future look like for rain in court? And uh, and and Stephanie in the law.com had a had a good article on uh, uh, what's this mean kind of what what does this uh, portend for the legal tech uh, industry more broadly? Um, I you know I, I I actually think rain in court was a really good idea. Uh, and uh, I would I would love to see them succeed. And I hope they you know, they're not dead yet. That's for sure. And, and uh, I know uh, they're still out there looking to try and raise some more capital uh, and beating the bushes to try and do that. Um, but I think their idea of trying to provide a way for uh, larger law firms to be able to kind of test software in a secure environment where it's easy to to deploy things and and uh where they had they all didn't have to go through all the kind of uh uh licensing uh headaches to to try and get the uh the the test uh, environment set up and everything uh it, it made a lot of sense and it seemed like a good way to try and get firms um to uh get a little more comfortable with cloud-based software which is really what they were what they were focused on uh and um so i don't know uh what anybody anybody else have any thoughts on on what this all means stephanie i know you guys covered it so yeah i mean it was also just such in a quick period of time i mean just for perspective i mean i've been in this job less than three months and it was the first embargoed story i got in this role was their crowdfunding raising that that fundraising and now already we have them canceling that cutting staff and it's just sort of because all of these big and this is sort of the gist of our articles that big tech has had this massive amount of layoffs in it and hadn't really hit small tech legal tech yet and then this is sort of the first example we're seeing so is it going to trickle down i mean their idea was really novel but was that a problem is where is funding going to come from in the future i think it just raises all these questions that i'm not answering at all right now because i don't know but um maybe my predictions that I'm getting an answer it somewhere in there, but it was just really, I mean, a notable about face in a very short period of time. What surprised me was the statement to the effect that there would be some service disruption. You know, that really surprised me because that's to admit that the layoffs were going to affect their service when that, that, I mean, that's what they're selling is their service, right? So that was pretty striking to me that they felt the need to actually include that as part of their statement and that that, and it, which implies to me that it's gonna be pretty disrupted if they feel the need to sort of add that caveat to it. So <clears throat> that just, I found that very unusual. Maybe that was just, yeah. was it just me? <laughs> Did that jump out at anyone else? No, I mean, I, I, just just reading the tea leaves, you, you have to sort of wonder when, when any company, particularly startup company, gets to that point that quickly, whether they can actually survive it um, and whether, you know, the end ending may just be inevitable. I hope that's not the case, but um, it sure, sure sounds pretty grim. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. think it will be. I mean, I don't maybe they don't know yet or obviously they don't want to admit how bad it'll be if they do know, because even, you know, Isha talking to Andrew Klein, he was like, he wouldn't confirm anything for sure, but he's like, layoffs are coming. There is more coming. So it's just, and that's in the article, but it's so, I don't know. Maybe they're hoping they can turn it around. Obviously nobody wants to broadcast how bad things will be if they can hold off on that, but. Yeah, I was, uh, that, uh, it, their their lack of uh, sort of a much much in the way of comment on this. I, I, I was, I, I, I was, I forget how I originally heard about this, but it was before it was reported anywhere. and. I decided I've got, I knew, I know Andy Klein, I've met him a number of times, nice, really nice guy, smart guy. And uh, I wanted to give him an opportunity to comment before I wrote anything and reached out to him and he just didn't respond, which is like, not like him. And then he, when he did, finally did respond, he's like, well, give me till tomorrow and I'll get back to you. And it's like, you know, they're just like yeah. getting their ducks in a row or something that, you know, that, when, when that happens. And, um, and then when he did finally he said he would call me and then he said, well, I'm not going to call you, but I'll give you some answers in an email. And, you know, it kind of went around like that. But, you know, it you're, the story, the story that Isha wrote for you, Stephanie, is she she talked about she raised this question of, you know, is this the, sort of the canary in the coal mine for right. for legal tech companies? And I don't think it's that I don't think what's happening with Rain and Court 
is it tells us anything about legal tech companies because I right. think really what's happening with reigning court, I think that the fault is actually more with the law firms that have been reluctant to sort of adopt this this model that they've created for for trying out software. Uh, you know, yeah, they've got a they've got a this core group of big name law firms that have invested in them and supported them, but I think they've had trouble gaining traction with law firms beyond that core group. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, I think internally from everything I've heard, they've had some struggles also just, uh, getting, I mean, they're, they're, the whole model is like getting all the software containerized so that they can, you know, put it onto their platform or make it available to firms to put on their own, uh, uh, operate in their own environments. And, uh, I think there was a lot of trouble. A lot, they had, I think there were a lot of issues working with some of these vendors to get this containerization accomplished and, and all of that. So I think there were just a bunch of roadblocks they hit that kind of independent of the whole issues facing the, the tech industry more broadly right now. Uh, I, I think this has been in a way a long time coming, but. Yeah. Uh, well, and then somebody also mentioned, I don't remember who it was, obviously, not anyone we could quote, but like looking back on how the sort of the crowdfunding move was so unique, but was that also maybe a negative sign that we didn't realize back then that if they had to, was it like a desperation move and everyone, desperation moves sort of wrapped up into cool new optimism, you know? Yeah. I, I, well, I think, and some people even said it at the time, but yeah. I raised that question of, you know, uh, it, given that they just raised this money, uh, is this, uh, what what's really going on here that they would yeah. do that but uh um so who knows um yeah. i mean the thing that always kind of struck me about their whole model is that <clears throat> they're kind of in a weird place because it's a really cool thing but the people they're trying to largely trying to sell it to are the exact type of firm that has the resources to create their bespoke solutions and don't really need the opportunity to kind of test it out in that kind of app store framework. So it's kind of like, it's a really cool idea. But unfortunately, the people they were aiming it at largely were the, the the only group that didn't really need it in law. You know, that was always my takeaway. And yeah. part of rolling out a product is validating your concept. And then ensuring there's a product market fit, just because it's a good idea, or it's a cool idea, doesn't mean that the market you're trying to sell it to is willing to buy it or is ready to buy it. You know, as we saw that like with Tally, for example, super cool idea, super forward thinking, but no one was ready for it. <clears throat> so you got to not only validate the concept, but also <laughs> ensure there's a product market fit in terms of them not just saying, yeah, that's a cool concept, but I'd actually invest some dollars into it. Right. So that's a, if you don't do that upfront, you end up in this situation sometimes. Well, but didn't they sort of do that by getting, I mean, they kind of, pulled together this consortium of law firms to back them from the get-go. I mean, they had they had a whole they bunch names of too. so-called yeah. clients or customers right from the get-go saying, we're signing on to this. We think this is a great concept. So you gotta have a growth you know, plan too, not just a handful of customers right. up front. I mean, you gotta have a plan to actually grow over time and exponentially if you really want to have a successful company. It's especially yeah. in today's environment, which is pretty competitive. Yeah. Although, yeah, although I, I have to say that the amount of business sense that many lawyers have for them to say this is this is a great business idea and it'll really work probably is <laughs> may, not, may not be the, the most ringing endorsement that there could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we're, we we uh, at least it, it's, still can't talk about them in the past tense, but uh, uh, who knows what what's going to happen with them over the over the coming. Uh, over the coming year, uh, unfortunately, they did lay off uh, a fair enough. Nobody seems to know exactly how many people that partly because nobody knows how many people they employed in the first place. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was always a little bit vague around that. But uh, uh, definitely some good, good people, uh, you know, have been laid off, including Sarah Glassmeyer, who's sometimes you know, I haven't checked if she's here today, but she's often in the audience on this show uh, and, and others. So. Uh, wish all well, those people and, well and before we before we go too far down you know burying burying run in court we have to remember there's a lot of layoffs going on right now it's not just them yeah <laughs> so. well yeah and i agree but to go on to touch on what you said bob that i mean 
our article was looking into whether this was the canary in the coal mine. And I don't think, I mean, we don't know, but ultimately, I mean, no one seems or hopes it isn't. So, I mean, most of the layoffs, there's so many people laid off, but a lot of it hasn't hit big tech. So I don't think this is like doomsday, you know? Yeah. Well, and others okay. have laid off, like Law Geeks laid um, people off very recently. And then the law firm Cooley announced yeah. layoffs. And so, I, you know, everyone's heading into the new year with um, some trepidation about the economy. And uh, the, I think the larger a company is, the more conservative they're going to be heading into the new year in, in, in terms of their like next year planning and also just in terms of <clears throat> um, expenditures. You know, they're just going to be conservative about it just to um, hedge their bets and make sure that they're positioned to thrive if we do go into a recession or if we don't, you know, we got to play it safe. And so, um, and all, a lot of signs are pointing towards a recession. <laughs> and every day when you hear more about these layoffs, it's especially in niche like legal tech versus the large. Yeah. I don't I mean, know. The GDP look, report was up today. So. The, I mean, the logics point is interesting though. Cause I mean, that was notable when it happened. Cause you didn't see that a lot. And at the time there was a lot of people trying to blame like, Oh, the tech was overpromised, The AI was overhyped that, well, maybe, I mean, maybe that wasn't the whole story. Maybe, you know, it, it, I mean, I don't think we'll see a ton of these. It's not going to be a mass layoffs in legal tech, but it probably won't be the last. Yeah. For sure. Well, uh, speaking of the economy, while uh, while uh, layoffs are happening and people are losing jobs, the prices of legal services and legal related uh, services seem to be going up. And we happen to have two stories this week uh, dealing with that. Uh, both Steve and Joe's story. So, Steve, you want to you want to kick it off with talking yeah. about yours? Yeah, sure. Well, I've come across several articles and surveys that um, basically kind of pointed toward two things. One, that law firms are really interested in raising their rates in 2023 to, I want to say unheard of levels, but certainly more than the norm. And I think part of that stems from the fact that, you know, there a lot of firms, firms are coming off record profit years. And, um, you know, there's, as I've frequently said, you know, there's, there's, nothing that uh, raises the ire of your partners if you're a managing partner and to tell them that you're going to make less money next year than you did this year. That doesn't, doesn't so when that happens, you know, there's two choices. You either, as a law firm, you either cut costs, lay people off, or you raise rates. And it's always been tempting for law firms to raise rates because most of the time clients will bitch and moan about it, but at the end of the day, they, they just accept it. Um, but there's talk this year, I think, that uh, or next year, that, that clients won't be so accepting that they're really sort of outraged by by the attempt of law firms to raise rates, which I think, you know, is a little um, ironic because, uh, you know, law firms are businesses, too, and um, they're hit with the same inflationary pressures that all all businesses are hit with. So. You know the 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 rates that the proposed rate increases may not even keep track with inflation in some cases. But in any event, it's kind of a kind of a perfect storm on the one hand, or it would appear to be on the one hand. But you know, as I've also said several times, the legal market is pretty segmented, so you it's hard to make a sort of a blanket. You know, the clients are not going to stand for this, or law firms aren't going to get to get their way. I mean, it's. You know, clearly in bet the company kind of cases, rates don't matter, never will matter because, you know, a bad result means you're out of business sort of by definition. So who cares what the rate is? And that's one class of cases where it makes little difference. The other class of cases is cases that are important enough to the business where results really do matter. Um, and so paying extra to get uh, a more experienced or established lawyer who, who might uh, raise his or her rates next year really doesn't matter uh, because you're really more concerned with the liability, the substantive result, and than you are with the rates. And then, of course, there's the third class where, as how I, you know, as, as people often say, getting a C job is fine because you know by the time you add the, the cost of the C job into the result of the C job, it's it's 
it's going to be more if you pay more rates. So you're better off paying less in rates and getting a less substantive result. So the trick, I think, has always been for lawyers to try to fit themselves into the first two categories, either the bet the company or very important cases. And I always think it's kind of funny because uh, lawyers are, particularly lawyers and law firms, are really good at uh, persuading and communicating, and they're really good at uh, at the sky is falling. Uh, you, you really need to, to take this matter very seriously because this could happen and that could happen. And oftentimes they're talking to in-house counsel who are also lawyers, who are also extremely risk adverse, who hear all this sometimes BS and say, oh, oh my God, you're, you're right. I guess I better pay. And I think that that's in part what's been able to drive continued rate increases for a lot of auto law firms over the years. So I think it will remain to be seen. I think there will be some law firms that will be taking a hit from their clients, uh, you know, who are doing more commoditized work and they're not going to be able to get away with the sort of standard, we'll raise you 5% this year and not even tell you, <laughs> yeah. which often happens. They don't even bother telling you. you don't even, they don't even notice it till you know, the year is three quarters gone. I said, wait a minute, I, I thought your rate was $300. What is this 350 stuff? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. So the, this dovetails also off of uh, when those of us who went to CleoCon, like that report uh, did show that lawyer rates that they were tracking, uh, you know, which is obviously one sector um, in that kind of two-tiered sector that Steve was talking about, uh, they were underperforming inflation and had room to increase their rates. Now, it's kind of unfortunate that it opens up a whole other can of worms, which is the thing that I've talked about a bit on this show is the the looming, less important, but still important access to justice issue of the middle class and small businesses being priced out of small firms, which is coming. But put that aside, uh, there is room at that sector to grow. And then as far as the other half, uh, the big law half, uh, there is as a as an old econ major, I would say there's a near infinite elasticity in the AMLAW 50. Uh, you could keep raising those rates forever and somebody's going to keep paying it because nobody gets fired for hiring Cravath. Uh, and so, yeah, it's going to track inflation to the extent inflation is here. It's probably going to be less than inflation. They're probably going to do the usual where, yeah, we're charging more, but we're writing off more and you're actually getting a discount. And by the end of the day, these clients are going to pay more. They're not going to realize they're paying more. They're going to grumble and then they're going to do it anyway. And we move on. But yeah, it's going to keep getting more expensive for everybody. Yeah, that, and little, that, the Clio survey the, had found that they tracking 3% yeah. below inflation for uh, smaller firm lawyers. It, it would be interesting to see. I mean, I, I agree with you. There's sort of infinite elasticity among the larger firms and, and they can just keep raising and the clients are just going to keep paying because they feel that they have to have these firms. There's that that myth that they need to have these big firms for their big cases. But um so I, I, it seems, just seems like an entirely different world with with smaller firms, and mm -hmm. I, I, they don't just so automatically raise their rates. And I think they're much more attuned to, uh, even though there is this sort of looming crisis of of, of rates, uh, even among even among smaller firms going up. I think the smaller firm lawyers are much more attuned to their clients' inability to pay uh, and and what that portends for them. I think that's one of the reasons that. Uh, you know, all the e-payment uh, processing uh, applications recently have added, you know, the payment financing and, and different kinds of financing and pay over time options for their clients to try and make it more palatable for them. So uh, it's, it's sort of like two different worlds. It'd be interesting to yeah. sort of track small firms versus large firms and what's happening in the fee in the fee development here. Yeah, you know, and it, that's, a, that's a really good point, Bob. It's, you know, I mean, we often, I'm guilty of this, falling into the trap of sort of doing a blanket assertion about law firms and the legal profession, when really it's composed of all these different sort of business models with different customers and different plans and different motives. And I mean, there really are different businesses, just like the car business is different than the travel business in a lot of ways. I mean, it's you know, it's so well, so what you say when you say what's going to happen with rates at big law, that's a completely different question. What's going to happen with rates at solo or small law 
law firms. Um, and that's, yeah. that doesn't even take into account the broad class of lawyers that make their living with contingency fees that, you know, that are completely rate agnostic because they don't care. I mean, it's a question of whether there's 30, 40 or 45% and whether they make a good bet or not. And that, I mean, that's so completely, again, a completely different business model with, with different concerns. So um, it's, it's an interesting profession because it's, it's not one, it's not, I don't think it's even like doctors are more monolithic than, than law firms. Yep. Yep. Uh, well, I also also in the uh, on the topic of price increases, uh, Joe, you've got a story, not even your story or not even an above the law story, but reaching yeah. out into the broader world of legal tech journalism. It's I, I'm all like about that. help and love. Yeah, <laughs> it's all I do. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I it, weirdly enough, even though we've been off for two weeks, I went back and I was like, huh, I have not written about legal tech in that entire two week span, huh? So I had to find something else. But uh, it is interesting. You know, I've, I've written in the past about the Pacer situation and, you know, how the federal courts, I'm not going to say that judges lied under oath. But anyway, they lied under <laughs> oath multiple times about how Pacer cost them two billion dollars a year to run that shitty website and chart and that's why they couldn't possibly not charge us an arm and a leg for everything uh that finally uh petered out as an excuse that they could use uh and they have responded by jacking up transcript costs uh so they're going to jack up transcript costs by 20 percent over the next two years uh which seems to the question of lawyers raising rates below the rate of inflation, 20% is very much above the rate of inflation outside of like Zimbabwe in the 80s. That is, it's a lot, right? And so it's gonna make things really unpleasant for folks and they're doing it because they can. Uh, And, you know, I'm one of those folks who does not think that technology and a a recorder with AI can't replace a court reporter. Um, that said, the court reporter job can change and it can become, you know, I mean, what some vendors I've spoke to on the court reporting issue uh, say like, look, whether we want to protect court reporters or not, they're, uh, they're a declining profession because people just don't want to do that anymore and they aren't, the schools aren't there anymore. Uh, so something needs to happen. Uh, that said, the court reporter is still important. They're just no longer as important for the transcript part, or I mean, they are in the SQUO, but you could replace that with something tech related, but they need to be there for the policing of that transcript, for correcting things, for being at depositions, for being an official, uh, not that this affects depositions, but that's the role that the transition is coming toward. Uh, And it struck me as this increase was happening that the federal government is going to absolutely bleed us as a profession until that revolution comes and probably for about 10 years after the revolution has hit everyone else. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that wasn't. I'm I'm on the fence about that one only because the court reporters need to get paid a fair rate, and and what they were getting paid was falling behind inflation for court reporters and the fees in the federal courts. So, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to that. At at the same time, there's this whole question of do we even really need court reporters anymore? As you say, as you suggest, I mean. The, the, you know, I, some of you folks probably know, I mean, like every time I hop on a call now, I have my AI transcription software that jumps on the call with me. And uh, at the end of the call, I have my little transcript of, of the call and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and it's not perfect, but it's pretty darn perfect. <laughs> uh, and and how much, you know, uh, how much would it take to just uh, have a, a couple of lawyers go go over that transcript after and see if they can agree on it or something? I don't know. Uh, there's, there's obviously other options. Uh, and it, you, you kind of wonder how much longer uh, for the world uh, uh, court reporters are going to are going to be a thing. Although I have to say, Bob, the chances of two lawyers, two adversarial lawyers ever agreeing on anything that was said in a deposition well, <laughs> that's transcript true, are probably pretty But low, you can also but, have a recording. But, I mean, you can have a recording yeah, and then but, you can have yeah, a transcript well, from the right. recording. I, I, and, and then... I think, you know, there, I think there's a, always going to be a place for court reporters, but they're going to have to do it differently than what they're doing. I mean, if one reporter sitting in one room with three people, you know, to take, taking testimony for six days, 
that's a pretty inefficient way of doing things when we have you know transcription services and voice recognition and i mean there are there are other more efficient ways that that could be done and i think that's probably what we're going to have to see plus as we all know that there are declining numbers of court reporters already and so that has to be dealt with because there's going to still have to be some sort of i think some sort of transcript even as we well, go that- forward yeah yeah, and that's why I was going to say transcriptionists and court reporters are two different things, right? I mean, transcriptionists can solve your problem of adversarial lawyers not agreeing what was on the record. You don't need the person sitting live to do it if there's a recording. Right. Well, and one benefit of the declining number of court reporters is it's one less party for people to confuse women attorneys with. So right? yeah, that's a that's a nice added bonus. <laughs> <laughs> what are they going to think we are, though? You know, maybe the paralegal. I don't know. Yeah, that's you. Yeah. You, you know, I, I, and I will also have to say, you know, in, in my years of, of taking depositions and particularly depositions, not so much court in a courtroom, but the court reporter does, the presence of a court reporter does lend a sort of an air of formality that, that, um, might not otherwise be there, whether it's justified or not. Certainly to the witness, I think the witness in most depositions sort of looks like, looks at the court reporter as someone with having some authority, even though they don't. And and the lawyers sort of do too. I mean, the, the court reporter can often control a bit about what's going on. They may not be able to control bad behavior, but they can certainly control the pace and and, and things like that. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it could be a place for them in some fashion, at least I hope. I mean, I hate to see them go away entirely. Well, well, there's also, the, uh, there's, there's also the exhibit factor for cases that are maybe not sophisticated enough to have all the online technology or small in-person cases where they have physical evidence still. Court reporter still plays a role in that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, talking, just go ahead, Nikki. I'm sorry. I was talking to a company, I think it was at Ilticon. I can't remember the name of it, but they uh, offered a variation on this, on that concept where they had people that were there to maintain the record, but um, they were like, yeah. it was remote corporators. I can't remember the name of the company, but yeah, you know, there was someone there too, who yeah. fulfilled that specific role um, right. in the absence of a court reporter. The readback you know, people, that was, that was, they had yeah. a really clever demo that they, uh, that they yeah. did where they, they, they took you into a booth and uh, you went into sort of a virtual uh, deposition and they had this comedian acting as a lawyer. It was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing. It was, it was a lot. Of, I did that was, too. So, but you know, one thing fun. I've noticed of late is that, you know, the, there are becoming more national sort of court reporting services as opposed to when, when I was a younger lawyer, it was all done locally. Now that it's a lot more national and, and the national services in some respects are becoming more like technology companies and offering various, you know, technological uh, products uh, for use with exhibits, for use with virtual depositions and hearings and remote transcriptions and, and setting all that up. And so, it, you know, it's kind of evolving away from firms offering transcription to firms offering certain technologies that could be used in litigation. Uh, courtroom and depositions. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's and somebody uh, mentioned the uh, you know the the reading back of the uh, of the transcript or the reading back of the testimony issue. And again, if you've used any of these, if you've seen any of these electronic uh, deposition platforms that are out there, uh, they're they're creating a real time uh, uh, you know rough transcript uh, of the of the uh, of the uh, Proceeding, so you can at any time stop and go back and review the question, the, the you know the text of the question and answer. Uh, you know, it, it again. It's I don't get me wrong. I love having. I, I still sit as an arbitrator. I I love the hearings uh, that where where we have a court reporter because they they just make it easier. Uh, I don't have to worry about taking notes so much. As others have said, they help with the exhibits and all of that. But uh, it it you know just like I I. To get to Dennis's analogy, I liked it when some somebody would tell me what floor to get off on the elevator too, but they're not doing that anymore. Well, and I, I liked Stephen's um, comment about how having a court reporter sort of encourages a little bit of decorum. And it was, it, in some ways, it's somewhat akin to the idea of why people oppose having cameras in the courtroom, because everyone's going to change the way that they behave because the camera's are there and litigate to the camera. This is a slightly different um 
concept, but it's the idea that this person who's actually taking notes is a reminder that um, your your testimony is being recorded versus a you know um, software running in the background or a tape recorder, whatever it's going to be, which is less of a reminder. So I, I people might be a little more unhinged if you don't have the court reporter sitting there reminding them that they're on the record. So it, it is an interesting uh, I'll change in dynamic that will uh, if court reporters do start to decline as we expect. I wonder how that's going to affect the decorum of depositions and if there's going to be like an increase in the fight, you know, getting the court involved more often to try to get, you know, people to be more compliant or answer the questions being asked or whatever the case may be in a deposition. Yeah. There are a number of courts I know in Massachusetts and I assume elsewhere in which the recording uh, run by the judge is the official record mm -hmm. of, of the proceeding. Uh, especially in some of the lower courts in Massachusetts, like the district courts, uh, there's a tape recorder running and not a tape recorder, whatever it is, a digital recorder running. And, uh, and that's the official record. Uh, and, and that's it. And the judge has the on off switch uh, sitting there on the bench. And uh, um, so, I, you know, whether we whether Pacer needs to be charging us for this, I don't know. Um, back to the original <laughs> question. Uh, so Nikki, what do you got this week? Well, I submitted um, my ABA journal uh, article that rounds up the software that I've written about over the year. Um, and uh, what I do every year is I um, write an article that sums up in November, all the articles I've written for the year. And then in December, I write one that um, talks about the highlights uh, in terms of legal tech news for the year. So this was the November one where I summed up the um, <clears throat> software and the other things that I wrote about. And I think what's interesting, especially as we're going through the pandemic, is looking back to see um, the topics that I identified as we were going through this as being relevant. So the, the column focuses on, for the most part, software or services for lawyers. And each month I focus on a specific type of service or software and I go over the a description of it. I explain why lawyers need it, how to go about choosing it, um, you know, making educated decisions about it. And then I just provide a brief outline of what's available in the market in terms of the most well-known products and provide some information like pricing and that type of thing. Um, and uh, since the pandemic started, um, part of what I do is I look to see which articles that I write a couple of years ago that could need to be updated because the markets changed or the products have changed. And then I also try to identify issues or topics or needs that lawyers may have given the unique circumstances we're experiencing at any given time. And on the challenge of the pandemic, you can sort of see by looking through my article that that, that very much affected what I covered. Um, the first two months, January and February, were summarizing the um, results from the My Case Legal Industry Survey uh, that I authored from last year, the 2021 Industry Report. Um, and, you know, I definitely take a look at that. Like I said, the 2022 one is coming out in two weeks, and um, it dovetails on some of the information from that report, a lot of new data, also includes some of the benchmark report data. So um, keep an eye out for that, and I'll probably write about that at least once in my article next year to summarize in this column, like what was in the news survey. Uh, but then, you know, when you move into the year, I wrote about remote deposition tools because we're just talking about that now. You know, that is um, increasingly uh, in demand in part because of the pandemic and in part because everyone realized how beneficial and uh, what uh, money save, uh, how it can be very cost saving to have these remote depositions. So I covered those to highlight the availability in the market of those types of tools. And then the remote court transcription technology, because that dovetails with the remote deposition and this idea that court reporters' um, roles are changing and that there are oftentimes some more cost-effective ways to transcribe what's happening in court as well. And then trial presentation software. Um, a lot of the trial presentation software has included some virtual options as well because they had to add that option during the pandemic. And again, that also becomes relevant, having this ability to use this software both in court and in virt for virtual um trials as well. Um, and that software just makes it a lot easier for people to present their case to the jury or to the fact finder. But also, um, it's much more affordable now because it's cloud-based. And so it used to be only the large firms could afford this. But now there's all sorts of options ranging from iPad apps to cloud-based software that are available and much more affordable. 
for solo and small firm attorneys as well. And it levels the playing field a bit there. Um, E-filing. E-filing was on the rise before the pandemic, but the pandemic forced everyone to, um, uh, they had to have digital documents, right? They had to figure out how to get digital documents, store them, maintain them, and so, and also file them. And so e-filing definitely increased as a result of that trend. And so I wanted to highlight e-filing services that are available because those services are so disparate, right? Like the, the, the not the, the services, but the systems that the lawyers have to interact with the websites. Um, it varies from court to court, even within a specific jurisdiction or even within a specific level of court. The interfaces are all so different um, that it's challenging for lawyers to navigate them, especially since some of the... Um, some of the interfaces and websites feel like they're from the 90s. So these e-filing services solve that problem. Lawyers don't have to worry that they're going to miss a deadline because they did it incorrectly. These companies will um, file it for you. They don't all handle all the different jurisdictions, but as I talk about in my article, one of them will probably handle the jurisdictions that you need, and you can outsource that to a company. Um, website chat tools, again, um, people are interacting online more, and legal consumers expect the ability to have questions answered outside of normal business hours because they've gotten used to that online interaction. So I highlighted website chat tools and then legal technology directories. There have been some- That was the best, I enjoyed that one the most. <laughs> best article ever. <laughs> there have been some additions to legal tech directories, including yours, Bob. So I wanted to highlight those to help lawyers make these educated decisions about the software products and tools that I talk about in this column. Then law firm websites, again, lawyers are updating their websites because they need more modern interfaces because legal consumers expect it. So I updated a prior article that I'd written on <clears throat> tools and providers that help you create a better website, ranging from consultants, legal specific consultants, or even um, practice management companies or other legal software companies that will build those for you. And then finally, in October, I wrote about virtual receptionist services. Um, which uh, are another thing that has been trending. Really, actually, as I go through this, all of them were in part impacted by the pandemic. More and more lawyers understand the value of having a virtual receptionist, either just for overflow or for off hours, or for when the pen, something like the pandemic happens that displaces them from their office. So that was another um, category of uh, services that I highlighted. And then next, like I said, next month's column is gonna focus on trending news topics uh, from the past year. And the big news out of all that was there are still lawyers who don't have websites. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was the thing at CleoCon, right? Like right. they came up with a new product to help them because there's so many that still don't have them. Right. And we've had one, my case has offered websites um, for probably seven or eight years now that we uh, designed for our customers that I have the client portal, have uh, lead intake forms built in and that, you know, that um, interact with our software to make it easier. So I think that's, definitely becoming a, a trend or at least a service that lawyers need more often. Yeah. Well, your, your columns are great uh, in the ABA Journal and, and it, just really useful surveys of different areas of legal tech and, and what's available out there. You know, um, what's interesting though is her articles in Above the Law are better than those, just so everyone knows. <laughs> I, like, I like all the different outlets because I write about different things. Above the Law, I like to write about stuff that's a little bit more edgy or um, stuff that uh, my articles there tend to have a little bit more of an um, informal way about them. And then my daily record articles are often cover ethical decisions or opinions that are handed down. And so I like having different outlets for different voices almost in different topics. It's fun. I appreciate all the opportunities to write. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, email me, Nikki. We can, <laughs> we can <laughs> contribute to content too. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Um, well, I, one other story I actually wanted to talk about this week, it just, it, I, it's, I, it's the, this, this story about this, uh, lawsuit between, uh, Aiken Gump and this, uh, little legal tech company out of California. I don't know how many of you saw that at all. I, I think I put it on the log this week, but I, you know, I, I, you, you, you try and be neutral about these things, but I've read the, read, read over the pleadings, uh, the, the complaint filed by Aiken Gump and, and the uh, answer uh, and counterclaim filed by this little legal tech company. And I don't know, it, it's just such a strange suit that this is the one where, uh, you know, th this company has been around for what has been 
20 years or something like that, developing software to help automate bill drafting, legislation drafting. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like uh, uh, helps automate aspects of, of writing a bill and standardizes and creates templates and that sort of thing. And uh, but they were this guy at Aiken Gump, who did a lobby, has a lobbying practice there, government relations practice or something, wanted to, uh, it was kind of meeting with them to talk about whether that software would work for them. And uh, at, at some point there, at some point, it's not quite clear, they were talking about this idea that the, the tech company says it was an idea they were already working on. And the lawyer says it was his idea for kind of how to take this tech to the next step uh and uh but uh the bottom line was they went and and uh essentially adapted products they had already created uh and and created a prototype of this of this next step uh and uh kind of went back to the firm and showed them the prototype and uh everybody was excited about it until until the company said, well, you're gonna have to pay us some money now. We've, we've been doing all this uh, prototyping for you for free, not for you, but we've been doing all this prototyping and, and conversations with you for free. And if you want to use this product, you have to pay for it. And suddenly there was like, okay, who owns this? Uh, and, and Aiken Gump went to court saying, uh, we had our lawyer had the idea and therefore, uh, we should uh, we we own it and uh, tech company saying no we were already working on this and uh, uh, and even if he had an idea we we're the ones who developed it we we did the engineering on it and and created it and applied our skill and expertise to to bring it out um, and uh, I don't know it seems like one of those uh, potential bad cases make bad law uh, kinds of situations but. Uh, and there's a whole David versus Goliath aspect to it. So it's, of course, Aiken Gump is one of the largest law firms in the world. And this is a, a 25 lawyer tech company out of out of California. Um, so uh, I think this is going to be really interesting to watch how this develops. But I, I, I just kind of wonder why in the heck Aiken Gump is, is pushing this. I don't really know what they expect to get out of this or, or whether it just seems a little bit frivolous to me, I have to say. But, Well, it's definitely one of those things that makes you go, hmm, like I agree with you. There, there's uh, got to be something else going on that would be the impetus behind the filing this lawsuit. Because it's also just from a PR perspective, kind of not the best press. <laughs> so <laughs> they have to balance a lot of different factors when they decided to go forward with this. So I wouldn't be surprised. I think your hunch is correct. And over time, maybe we're going to learn uh, a little bit more of the dirty laundry that's behind this thing that maybe isn't so readily apparent at first. Yeah. I mean, one, one interesting reference in the Aiken Gump complaint was that, was that this lawyer who had the idea was sort of uh, jockeying to be recognized within the firm as like the innovator of the lawyer of the year or something like that. Uh, yeah. And uh, so it had a lot at stake personally, I guess, on this, but that doesn't really explain why, why the firm would, would do it. But so who knows? Well, that's what I was wondering, like, is it a big ego, but it would have to be a big ego who was a significant rainmaker to have that much um, uh, uh, influence <laughs> to, to bypass, to overrule all the other concerns that are evident when you file a lawsuit like this, just in terms of like press and uh, um, expense. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I find it hard to live. I, I, my initial thought, the exact like same thing you did, like maybe it's ego, but it'd have to be a pretty significant person's ego to make that happen. <laughs> so I feel like there must be something else, but maybe that's all it mm -hmm. is. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, like, yeah. And the question in the comments, is there something more in the underlying IP? I mean, I feel like it would have to be something really cool, for lack of a better word, for them to, to do this too. Cause like you said, it's such bad PR the David Goliath aspect of it. But I mean, maybe there is something really special in there, but I highly doubt it. I don't know. I'm curious. Well, and you also have to consider the fact that, you know, when, when you file a lawsuit, you have to be a witness, you have to have depositions. Uh, so you've got probably a number of partners that are going to be 
dealing with this lawsuit that bill out at very high rates that are going to have to take time away from billing clients so that there better be something worth it to them all for, to do that, I would think. It reminds um, me a little bit of the Thompson Reuters, right? That sued Ross. Yeah. It reminds Thompson me Reuters has a little bit of that Ross. feel. Um, it does definitely. Well, the David Goliath aspect to it, uh, for sure. Uh, but it's a very different, seems very different in, in, in other ways. I mean, the, the Thompson Reuters one is more, uh, well, they're both kind of involved alleged theft of intellectual property in a sense, but uh, uh, in, in different contexts. Yeah, and like Thompson yeah, Reuters is their core product. You know what I mean? That yeah, they that's offer. what I was just going to say. This isn't like yeah. Gump's core product. Their core product is their legal services. So there's right. definitely a distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, there's a little bit of a uh, connection to the legal journalism world in that the president of uh, this legal tech company uh, used to be one of the top executives at, uh, at Dolan Media, which used to own some of the papers that Nikki writes for and uh, for which uh, I was actually uh, temporarily employed many years ago as a uh, at one of their papers and uh, uh, and uh, he comes out of a legal journalism background, a journalism back, legal journalism background, actually. Uh, so uh, uh, there, there's that connection too. Uh, anything else? Good of the order. Anything else? Anybody want to talk about this week? There's always the evolving show, shit show of Twitter. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, we were just talking before we signed on about who's who's gotten onto Mastodon or not, and whether we're all. And I was trying to figure out whether Victor Lee. I was wishing was Victor was here this week because it looks like he might have canceled his Twitter account, but um, can't find him there anymore. His the username he had before says his account's been is no longer valid. Uh, this this uh, I'm going to be off going off this week to the uh, the Legal Tech Fund. Uh, summit their first their inaugural summit down in miami so i don't think we'll do a show next week because i'm going to be flying home next friday afternoon uh but uh <laughs> sorry to disappoint you um well, we, well we're gonna stephanie and I are gonna be in the same place so we already were like plotting out like how yeah, to have a we'll camera so that we could both be on and yeah we were gonna oh. do like a statler and waldorf thing in the same room yeah uh where are you gonna be it, bob <laughs> Well, maybe we can set it up. I don't know. Maybe there's a way to set it up. I like I can check in. I think I'm pretty sure I'm going to be on a flight like literally at that time. Um, so we'll see. Uh, avatars. Avatars. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting because I I, uh, I I guess I knew this at some point, but I, I they were just reminding me today that it's all off the record. So uh, I'm going, but I, I can't actually report on any of it. Um, yeah. But oh, uh, that's super interesting because we were trying to figure out we were going to try to send our Florida person. So good to know. Yeah, Maybe that's why yeah. it didn't happen. Yeah, I think what I I mean, what I can do is if people want to sit down and talk to me separately and yeah. whatever and and write about that or record a podcast or something, I can do that. But I can't cover any of the sessions. So that will be interesting. But well, when we get back together, I'll let you know how that goes. And uh, until then. Hope everybody stays well. And uh, if we're not here next week, we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks to everybody for being here today. So long, everybody. Have a good one. Thanks.